it's not Thursday, it's Tuesday, Tuesday night today. And, and it's for Plastic Climate. Pretty good, pretty good. Future.com. Boom! Yeah, I mean, we're good, man. <laughs> Bob Dylan, stand aside, stand aside, brother. You know, I'm glad we chose Bob there. Dylan. That's about we're right. Getting there, you know, it's, it's about the words. It really got good words here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's this was I think the vibe for of our guest today because yeah, we yeah. have uh, someone from United States. It's Philip Phil Tainton from. The CEO of Melinda, Philip. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, nice tonight. to be here. Cool. Um, yeah, we are here uh, tonight to talk a bit about innovation, plastics, polymers, maybe recycling and circularity, and that's why we have invited you because Melinda takes kind of all the boxes and that we want to cover and we want to engage uh, in, uh, in the discussion around plastics, climate and the future. Mm -hmm. um, but before diving deeper, I thought I'll ask you uh, something more personal. So what brings you to the space of plastics and polymers and the whole world of composites that we're going to talk about today? What's your background? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a good question. And there's so many dimensions to background, right? And so uh, I recently spoke to a group of high schoolers, and I, I think I'll kind of take the same tack I took with them in, in answering this question. So really, um, <clears throat> going back to being a high school kid, it was... <laughs> becoming a polymer scientist was not on my radar at all. And uh, I I might have been able to tell you what a polymer was. And I was not a, a good student by any stretch I got by. And so I never expected myself to go uh, and earn a PhD. Um, I wasn't even 100% sure I would go to college or finish college at that time. Mm. Uh, I'm from... <clears throat> A family with six children. Uh, my father is a Baptist minister. Wow. And, <laughs> wow. Um, I didn't really know any scientists growing up. I didn't really know many professionals, wow. to be frank. Um, <laughs> and so um, this is not something that I like had as a goal. Um, I didn't have very many goals, to be frank. And so but did you did you have chemistry classes in school at least? Yeah, so I I always liked science and I always enjoyed <laughs> science and I had an aptitude for it and math was like an evil necessity to get to get yeah, the science. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I'm um, from Arkansas. Did you say math or meth? <laughs> right? <laughs> and so yeah, so so I didn't I really kind of just followed my interest into school. So in a way it was kind of freeing because I didn't have any expectations, especially uh -huh. being uh, child number five, people barely notice you exist, let alone expect anything <laughs> out of you. Um, 
And so, so that's kind of how I came to it. And when I went to college, I just tried taking science classes. And even at that time, even as I graduated college with a chemistry degree, I just wanted to get a job and work and, and live. And, um, I didn't really expect to ever go back for a PhD. I thought if I ever earned a PhD, I'd become intolerably arrogant. And that was actually true. <laughs> um, so I was right about that. Um, but, but why did you choose the in college? How, uh, why, why did, why didn't you choose like philosophy? Oh, I wasn't good enough else? at physics. So I went with chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't good with chemistry. So I was engineering. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, you know, so I was following my interests and following what I, I liked in the first around about the time that physics was getting um, harder to comprehend for me, I took organic chemistry and it really clicked and I sort of found my niche there. Wow. And uh, just, I've been in one way or another sort of pursuing that ever since. And so after college, I got a job. I worked at a corporation called Avery Dennison. Unfortunately, it was 2008. Uh, and so we had the economic <laughs> collapse. Yeah. And so I never really had a, career prospect there just kind of a way to make a wage for a few years and hitting the glass ceiling there is, is sort of what sent me back to graduate school um but as a re result of that i got training in in polymers and resins and glue and how to manage and how to how to develop new products and how to characterize these resins and how to test them and how to process them uh lots of hands-on um skills that came in handy later when i started my phd in uh dynamic covalent chemistry which is a bit of a mouthful um but it it, it sort of positioned me at the right time and right place with the right background uh to do what we ended up doing and yeah. so it's kind of you know some people work by setting goals and five-year plans and following it but my path has always been a bit more opportunistic and keeping my eyes open and you know when an opportunity does come running with it and seeing where it takes me uh and that that's sort of yeah. in in lieu of having a plan that's been my approach <laughs> mm. that's a good one i think that's uh <laughs> You know, in the end, you end up doing what what your passion is, or you have a higher probability to 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 end up in a job like this. Um, but now that you mentioned covalent dynamic organic chemistry, I think that's something that we need to to explain because I'm not sure if, except us chemical nerds, uh, all of our audience will understand what that is. Um, so. What are you exactly doing if you tell it to a child, a five-year-old? Sure, sure. <clears throat> Just imagine so, you're talking to me, okay? <laughs> or to a five-year-old or a chemical engineer. Yeah. It's really, really hard to imagine <laughs> talking to John right yeah. now. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's a couple of different ways of visualizing this, and I'll, I'll just kind of go through a few different analogies here to kind of um, paint the picture. Um, the way I talk to my mother about it is with reference to the kitchen. Um, 
And that's just specific to my mother. Not every mother has to be in the kitchen, but my mother was in the kitchen a lot feeding five boys. Um, And so there's kind of two classes of plastics, um, as you might think of them, or glue is another term. Um, And so one class is called a thermoplastic, and it's a lot like butter because butter you can melt it it becomes a liquid and then when you cool it it could be hard and then you can always melt it again and on and on and so you can you can see the butter go through this phase transition from solid to liquid and um and it's really a good example of a thermoplastic material and so that's what we think of in our pet bottles or water bottles and plastic chairs and things like that they're very often um thermoplastics that are melt processed in process typically called um, injection molding Mm -hmm. is most common uh thermosets on the other hand are like eggs they start as a liquid resin and then when you cook them they become hard (laughs) or you could also think of it as like baking a cake and so once you've cooked an egg no matter how much you heat it, you cannot go back to the liquid egg, yeah, right? Yeah. So there's an irreversible <laughs> cure is how we describe it um, to make an egg uh, for breakfast. And so those are kind of your two types of resin of plastics. There's a thermoplastics like butter and there's thermoset yeah, yeah. like eggs. And when you think about materials and when we think about what do good recyclable materials have in common and we think what are the materials we know are really good at recycling one is glass and another is metal and what both of these have in common is dynamic exchange of chemical bonds at the molecular level and what i remember from third grade when we learned about metals was two words they were vocabulary words they're malleable and ductile Uh, (laughs) right and so when you pound out a piece of metal you can change its shape and what's happening at the molecular level is it's actually kind of trading places the metal atoms are trading places and exchanging um exchanging their chemical bonds in order to rearrange this is why you can weld with metal This is why you can melt it back down and reprocess it. Um, And with glass, it's similar. So silicon and oxygen are the atoms that make up glass. And when you heat it up, they start to trade places. And that's what allows glass to be remolded. If you've ever watched a glass blower Mm -hmm. do their thing, um, the glass doesn't melt like butter. It becomes kind of this molten thing like a lava, right? Mm And what's making it move is what whatever pressure the glass blower is is applying, but what's allowing it to move is the exchange of of bonds. Mm-hmm. And so this this is a fundamental um, fact. If you want a material that's really good at recycling, repurposing, and repair, it should have exchangeable bonds. And plastics, both thermoplastics and thermosets, which were designed in the 20th century by chemists like me, 
they were designed to be as irreversible and permanent as possible. Yeah. And so really by design, mm. they're not good at recycling, repurposing or repair. And they're not designed for circularity at the, at the fundamental level. And so what we do and what vitrimers are is changing the design strategy for plastics mm. and intentionally bringing in these really good reversible exchangeable chemistry into the plastics and um, <clears throat> it really enables them to behave under certain conditions exactly like a, a molten glass and in other circumstances it allows you to very easily depolymerize and solubilize and take a solid egg and basically dissolve it. And so in a way we do make eggs that melt. Wow. That's so cool, <laughs> I think, man. I think uh, this, this was the best chemistry class that I've ever had. Yeah. Although I've had, I've had actually my, my chemistry teacher, he was tell, tell, uh, explaining to us molecular orbitals with the German uh, Bratwurst. Oh man! <laughs> so he, he was he was saying that. like this 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 <laughs> orbital is this type of bratwurst and the other orbital is this type of bratwurst and so on. So um, I had I had a similarly uh, cooking aficionado as a chemistry teacher. <laughs> no, amazing! I think this is this is a real really cool uh, explanation because I mean I've I've struggle to to grasp it first myself how this works the technology from of vitrimers or, or vitrimers in general um let alone like explain it to someone <laughs> that's already uh, the next level of uh, challenge and i think that this comparison is amazing so basically melinda is just to sum it up sorry john um so basically melinda is has developed a new type of resins or mm -hmm. let's say glues plastics resins polymers that behave like an egg that can be can go back to the fluid state right so i think that's a good summary and then we, we can get into the detail from there about what what it looks like in real life but, but that's the basic idea that we're bringing in to the industry that makes glue and composites and plastics. John, no, it's your turn. Uh, oh, I, uh, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> you had a question. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't remember. I, I kind of lost my train of thought there, you know, uh, but, but just want to say, uh, I, I think the analogies that you used at the very beginning were really, really indeed some of the best I've heard as well. So I just echo what, what Matt was saying as far as, uh, you know, using uh, uh, some, some metaphor and analogies to to describe the, you know, what you well, want to describe. So true, yeah. Well, I don't have a lot of good ideas, but I know how to steal good ones when I hear them. So I've, yeah, yeah. I've borrowed bits and pieces of this explanation over the years from. Uh... Yeah. yeah, no worries. I'll you. But I do want to get to like, uh, you know, what 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 markets and applications are you going to go into and and. Are, are you building new areas that have not existed or are you, are you displacing thermoset composites or are you displacing thermoplastic composites or both or uh, stuff like that, you know, and the scalability, I mean, because 
uh, I, we both think uh, that 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 you know the solutions in, in in the polymers value chain to to increase sustainability in in the truest sense of the definition and and circularity in some cases, you know, is 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 to uh, uh, have have a mix of all kinds of solutions. And I, I wonder mm-hmm. what if you think about just you know plastics, uh, one million metric tons per day of new plastics are made in the world. I mean, uh, are you are you are you propose, saying that you're developing solutions that can compete with that scale, or or are you looking at a niche? So so I'm going to be quiet, you know. I, but uh, this is what I do: I ask some questions and I shut up. So take over, Matt. <laughs> now we understand what 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 vitrimer resins or plastics are. But I think then for for to get a even better pictures with John just said like what are possible applications and and what do you want to replace or where do you want to where do you see like usbs and and where do you see benefits of using bitrimers and yeah as he as, as john just said like how can we scale and and div- go from there to to maybe even some some completely new innovative applications as you just mentioned like the plastics and thermosets uh were designed in the 20th century but not for circularity and now we know we have to look more into closing the loop and in the design process of new materials include these thoughts and aspects sure sure so um it's an interesting question and it was a question i was asking myself as a graduate Mm -hmm. student um and at the time I only knew kind of the specific formulation that I had first discovered and what it could do. And I didn't realize kind of how, how general this could be, uh, in terms of the chemistry that we were working on. I think it's important to mention that I did not come up with this idea. Um, I was inspired in 2011 when I read a paper, uh, by a French Polish born French scientist named Ludwig Liebler who it, as a polymer physicist really conceptualized these vitrimers and understood how they could be processed and reprocessed um, and then found a, a chemist collaborator to kind of demonstrate his idea in an early paper. And so with my, with my polymer background and sitting in a dynamic chemistry group in graduate school, I really kind of understood that this was going to be a big deal and um, wanted to contribute to the field. And, you know, we worked on our own kind of platform of chemistry that we had access to in our group to then develop an example of a vitrimer system that we could then publish. And my, my goal was simply to publish papers because that that's how they, let you out of a PhD program, um, eventually. And so that was my entire ambition. And so, but as we realized kind of how special the chemistry we developed was, and, you know, there's some technical facets to it that I can just list, but essentially there was no catalyst required to enable the, the bond exchange. Um, and the chemistry we developed was, completely stable to um to hydrolysis which is the for this type of chemistry uh 
the the usual culprit for what makes it unstable. Mm-hmm. So we had something that was unusually stable that didn't require catalysts to do the special vitrimer tricks, um, but also it was it was all made with off the shelf chemicals. So you didn't have mm-hmm. to synthesize any new chemical in order to make it work. And that last point was really key in pushing us towards looking at commercializing it because mm-hmm. usually chemists can do anything if we can design a molecule and then build that molecule and then put that in a system. There, there's almost no limit on what we can achieve with electrical properties or mechanical properties or you name it. But to do all of it with existing Lego blocks that are already part of the, the chemical supply chain means there's a lot fewer barriers to entry to, to go ahead and commercialize it and scale it and, and have it make an impact. Yeah. And so th- that was kind of how I came to be thinking about what to do with it. And then the question is, what do you do with this? Because there's literally so many places to go. The, the world of plastics and glue is so huge. And how do you choose an application? Um, and so that's when we started to look into entrepreneurship as a means to find out what the industry needs and what we could potentially do if if we could find some niche that at small scale we could still sell and make a profit and start to get this off the ground um and so that was that that's the game we started to play in just doing customer interviews um it's a process called customer discovery um, where you come up with a hypothesis and then you test that hypothesis by asking real customers who would who would potentially buy that solution to see what their actual needs are and whether it lines up with with what you can offer. And so by going through that process, we identified composite materials because we knew we could do this recycling and repair and some of these things, but we also knew that plastics by themselves are quite cheap. And so we needed a way to leverage the value mm-hmm. of what we were doing. And so when you have a composite that's 30% resin and 70% fiber, and the fiber is quite expensive, even if the resin cost doubles, you don't recognize that in, in the final cost of the part. And so it was a way of really kind of just in a way, amplifying the, the the value or another way of saying it would be hiding the cost of a new resin uh, in the composite. And so that's that's how we started to, to work on composites. But did you have any competition at this time? Did you Was there anything similar already in, in research or on the market? Um, were people already looking into these topics or were you kind of the first ones? Yeah, I mean, at at the time that we started in 2014, you know, I'll say this in the composites market um, and in the composites industry, there's really a lot of people who are just fascinated by technical things. This is not an industry full of people chasing the dollar bill. Uh, it's really full of people who are following their passion to make things and to design things and make and manufacture high performance um, objects like race cars and aircraft and surfboards, surfboards and bicycles <laughs> and yachts and 
boats and all these things. And so it's really full of people who are passionate about making things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that has been the biggest kind of joy over the years of just getting to know this industry. And it's really kind of a nice industry to work in. Um, and that being said, everyone is interested in nerding out over a new capability. There's a lot of intrinsic interest in, um, in being able to do things that are new or make new parts and this sort of thing. And so ever we had a lot of interesting conversations in the beginning, but at the same time, at that time in 2014 in the U S there was no appetite or perception of value in recycling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that was not really a value add. It was a nice to have, um, that no one would pay extra to have. Right. And so, um, we focused elsewhere in kind of new capabilities that this enabled. And so we really kind of focused on the value of remolding something into a new shape, mm-hmm. which is also, you know, not something your current cooked eggs can do in mm-hmm. terms of thermoset composites. And so that really became the focus for us for the first several years is uh, developing a resin system that could enable reshapable custom formable composite pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, there was some competition, um, but nothing that really could do what we could do in terms of actually truly being able to remold something over and over again into whatever shape you'd like without compromising the strength. This is uniquely enabled by the bond exchange um, within the material. Mm-hmm. And so we've always had sort of a unique platform of technology compared to all of the incumbent um, materials and technologies. It's just just been a game of um, trying to find that killer application, trying to find the early customers, trying to actually get some new plastic resin glue gooey stuff, sticky stuff from the lab into actual physical products, um, which is, which is quite a journey. So your resin technology is something that you can remold. That's what you just said. And also recycle. Right. So basically recycle means you like chemical recycling or mechanical recycling, or how would you do that? Mm -hmm. So there's, you kind of have all of the options on the table because you've built in the um, the reversibility in the polymer itself. Mm. And so chemical recycling is quite easy to do. There's two ways to do chemical recycling. Um, one is to use a very strong acid, which uh, reverses the reaction that we use to make the um, polymer in the first place. So there's a condensation reaction to make the polymer and water as a byproduct. So depolymerization, yeah? Depolymerization you can do by hydrolysis, which is enabled by a strong acid. So once you've done that, you can then separate out the chemicals um, which went in and you can reuse the same chemicals again in the same way. So it's a, it's a circular approach. 
but it also uses up a strong acid and makes kind of a salt byproduct. And then there's some chemical separation steps involved. Um, so it's, it's fairly scalable, um, but it does have waste streams, right? And so we prefer to use a different chemical recycling approach, which is quite unique to our chemistry, which involves an exchange reaction between the uh, reversible linkage in the polymer, which is called an imine link, and one of the starting materials, which is called a diamine. And so this diamine can do a, an exchange reaction with the polymer. And by doing that, it's actually adding an in-group into the network. Um, and so essentially at room temperature, you can react in some of your starting material and it breaks, it effectively breaks the, um, the polymer chain into smaller and smaller pieces. It's like taking a long train and adding more engines or more cabooses, right? So every time you add an engine or a caboose, yeah. you're creating a new separate <laughs> train that breaks kind of the first train in half. And so that's exactly what's happening when we add our, our starting material into the polymer is it reacts in and adds another caboose in the middle of the chain and effectively breaks it into small enough pieces that it all dissolves. Mm -hmm. And so what's nice about this is because we're using only a precursor to the resin itself as the processing chemical, as opposed to a strong acid, all of the resulting solution can immediately be used without chemical separation to make more resin. Mm -hmm. Wow. So basically just for to explain it for a non-chemical nerd. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically you have a resin that is that hardens and that is at certain like conditions is inert, which means it doesn't it's not getting affected too much by by the environment like an epoxy resin <clears throat> but then you're still able to take it apart into the building blocks and then you can use exactly those same building blocks in a, in a right in, it would be as if your cooked process. egg dissolves in egg white uh -huh. <laughs> that's that's this is the comparison that i needed <laughs> right yeah so it's, it's as if your cooked eggs dissolves in yeah, egg white yeah, yeah. and then you can go ahead and make more eggs yeah yeah um, but you cannot so, you, you, but it sounds a bit like you can dissolve it and you get more resin but you just don't get more resin you just have to always uh you know uh use kind of the one resin building block to dissolve it right, and then you can right. reuse these building blocks to make the you need resin. to you need yeah. to add back the the egg yellow to complement the yeah, egg white yeah. to get the same ratio and yeah, then yeah, yeah 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 and so so you are adding more <laughs> material and so the way to do it perfectly circularly would be with the um with the acid yeah. approach um but that's a little more costly so in the beginning since we're ramping up production um there's always a need for more and more and more resin and we can circularly reuse and recycle all of the end of life and all of the production scrap um, so that's a nice way forward for us and it's a it's a really efficient um way to to do it but if you're on a spaceship or on an island you know and ultimately that's what we are 
then the acid hydrolysis is is the most circular option mm-hmm. um and then mechanically you can also recycle this um and actually if you think about um if you take the uh, vitromer as a thermoplastic or as a resin by itself not in composite not in fiber you can actually grind up mm-hmm. a plastic part and then press it above the transition temperature to vitromer behavior and if you press it above that temperature you can regenerate the same material with the same strength uh, and through many generations of recycling you don't lose strength uh, which is uncommon but that's part of the the circular design um, so, can, so can, can I ask you a technical question? Yeah. So, so, so these are composites, and so you have you have your polymer as a matrix. Let's call it the matrix combined with the fibers. Uh, it's composite. So, so it reaches its end of life. And you, you're you're describing the chemistry of of this to, uh, but but you, you, what about the separation step of 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 the composite to enable? the recycling of, of, of the polymer stream. I mean, yeah. So, um, you know, when you have a composite, there's a bunch of stuff in there, right? That's and right. At, at the minimum, there's fiber and resin, but very often there's other things too, like, uh, some microscopic ceramic particles that are added into the resin and things like that, things that will be insoluble. Mm-hmm. And so, for us, step one in this process is to dissolve the resin, which then leaves the fiber behind, as well as any other insoluble um, pieces. And so that step we know is, as these things go, fairly easy and straightforward. Usually where the rubber meets the road on these things is um, is extra cleaning steps for the fiber um, after removal of the resin. So common approach today is something called pyrolysis, where they just burn off, essentially burn off the resin from a composite. Uh, but the re- the fiber that they recover. But that's not pyrolysis, and because pyrolysis definitionally in the absence of oxygen, that's maybe gasification. But so maybe you can explain. Um, technically what what pyrolysis is here but it essentially um some chemical reaction to to burn away the resin um and remove it from the fiber more like gasification i'm sorry but uh, i mean uh sorry that triggered uh, uh, that was a trigger word for me all right we may all want right. to cut this we may want to cut this here uh but but uh i deal with chemical recycling quite a bit in my work Sure, uh, and um, this uh, I deal with 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 entities out there that are in the business of incineration, which is the true mm-hmm. burning of plastics, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a true generation of, of of a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, and it's the worst way to go. Uh, and yet they, they use the fact that the, the term pyrolysis reminds you, you just a, this is a case study. Sure. Uh, of using the, the the word pyrolysis, the prefix pyro, we think as Americans for sure, we think of pyromania, we think of flames, and, and the incineration lobby, especially in Germany, uh, use this to argue against the implementation of chemical recycling technologies. Yes, 
pyrolysis for polyolefins. Uh, and hands down, that that solution is much better in terms of reducing carbon footprint than sure. incineration. But but they 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 they're very happy to be dis, uh, intellectually dishonest and use that prefix uh, for for their for their reason. So so <laughs> sorry, it was a trick. No no, that's actually I think that's a, a good thing to probably keep in. Yeah. Um, but it, essentially for us, what's What's advantageous about our solution-based recycling approach is that it leaves extremely pristine fibers without a need of extra kind of cleaning steps to clean the surface of the of the fiber. So we see just with one rinse after this process, um, we don't see any residue of, of our polymer left on the fiber surface. And so that's, that's another way in which... Um, um, the solvolysis approach in vitromers is is fairly efficient in, in terms of how to separate and reuse the different components, not just the resin itself. I think let's jump to to um, a less less fiery less fiery nerdy discussion well, the, the more in the weeds we get the more we're going to find ways to disagree right yeah oh, we, we agree we agree uh what i would say <laughs> is, is 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 indeed what 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 one needs to avoid uh not you and not me but just one the the one is is a uh, is 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 a uh, making irrelevant comparisons you haven't done it i haven't done it but but i see it all the time yeah, no, uh, you know, uh, and uh, uh, what what Matt and I both uh, see based on what we read and listen and look to is indeed it, this moving forward. It requires this this true portfolio of solutions. Yeah, uh, and, absolutely. And, so what, and what what's clear to me is is man, you're 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 applying scientific method and intelligence that's beyond the scope of me to do something uh, correctly. Uh, and and uh, so so don't 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 think for one moment that I doubt, doubt that you know so sorry. oh not at all not at all and I, I think there are a lot of false equivalencies out out there and I agree with you yeah it's going to take all of these approaches and the whole portfolio and all of us pushing forward to make yeah. um, to change this industry mm -hmm. um, and and change the fundamental thinking and everybody can do their part with the tools they have in their hand to make it better. Right. And so yes. we, we need absolutely all of it. And and to, to kind of pit us against each other as if it's like a football match is just kind of crazy. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent. But I'm trying not to talk too much now. So, Matt, take it over, sir. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly our mission. I mean, this is what we want to have. We want to have exactly these discussions and we want to, you know, uh, help also to find a common language uh, between, you know, people from the thermoset, from the composite industry, from thermoplastics, recycling, chemical recycling, mechanical recycling. We spoke with Tomra, we also spoke with uh, Claritar. So one is chemical recycling, the other one is, is mechanical recycling. And uh, what we learned is that we need both. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And, we need, and they will, and they have to, and they talk to each other, and uh, that's why we need to, you know, open up uh, new channels for for conversations and mm -hmm. and be, and trust each other, and and then that's that's the 
true way to circularity because it's it's interdisciplinary and it combines uh it's complex so we need as many as many stakeholders and contribute as possible but they have to just speak the same language so that's why we have plastic climate future absolutely no, that makes sense. <laughs> i think what, what would be interesting is to learn something about the applications that you're already in like what products or which industry sectors um and uh how do you actually drive circularity or or how do you make them more sustainable through circular approaches and is the mindset already there in these industries are they actually open to to use and maybe spend more money on the resin even if it's in a composite so our approach has been you know really kind of as i mentioned in 2014 coming out there was no as far as we could tell in all of our interviews, which were all in, in North America at that time, or mostly in North America, um, there was no kind of driving force or value around circularity or recycling at that time. Um, but that has changed quite dramatically in the mm -hmm. last eight years. And it's in, as far as we could tell, it's really been driven by the circular economy um, initiatives in the European Union. And it's becoming something of an existential question for manufacturers of non-recyclable goods, whether or not they will still have a business um, in Europe. And so that's really become the driving force for adoption of our resins. And it's starting again, kind of in the composite segment where you've got an industry that's been growing over the decades with the promise of highest performance mm -hmm. kind of possible. And the alternative lightweight materials are really kind of aluminum and magnesium, magnesium being quite expensive. Um, but the difference between aluminum and advanced composite materials is that aluminum is recyclable. And so you really have a moment now that the industry, at least in Europe, is potentially at threat of losing all of its market share back to aluminum because it's recyclable and for no other reason, right? And so there's a huge need right now, um, in some ways, regardless of cost, to find a replacement for epoxy resin or similar um, thermoset resins using composites that is recyclable. Yeah. And so that's that's how we've positioned our product. We've developed it to drop into the, the processes that are currently used by thermoset composites um, so that our customers don't have big switching costs to change to another process. Uh, but they can use their same equipment, their same know-how, but now make materials that are more easily recyclable than aluminum. Um, and so we're really kind of finding our groove in the industry, right time, right place, or at least we were able to survive long enough that a trend came along um, that reinforces what we do. And so I, as, as, 
a formulator sitting in a laboratory in Colorado cannot change the world to become more circular. I can enable it technically, but circularity itself has to come uh, from other other directions. Yeah. Now, what I think is interesting moving forward is the recycling that we enable and that we see in vitromers. It's so efficient that it's always going to cost less to recycle than to make um, new. Yeah, new material yeah and so we've got you know the way you price a resin or a commodity material is usually with a profit margin less than 40 percent um 40 percent is kind of specialty and then as you get more and more towards commodity it gets closer to like a 10 percent profit margin or something like that well today in our recycling process we see 75 percent margins mm -hmm because we can displace so much of our chemical input costs with very, very little energy or process costs. Mm. And so there's room there for us to do it efficiently, even as real life complications come into play, we have room to accommodate the real life complications of what about this? What about end of life? How dirty is it? Blah, 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 on and on. And, and of course, every application involves its own kind of wrinkles. But with 75% margins, we've got room for wrinkles. Hmm. And so yeah. it's really kind of could be a turning point in the sense that circularity now becomes purely economically driven. Mm -hmm. um, but for us to get off the ground, absolutely, it's uh, until we get to scale and prove it and, and have our recycling uh, scaled up as well. No one would adopt this if it weren't for kind of the regulatory environment around circularity. Mm. Uh, because when you look at manufacturing and efficiency, change is bad. Nobody wants to change their input materials. Yeah. yeah. So do you, because you just said regulations <clears throat> play a big role, do you, like here in, in, in the European Union, we have the Circular Economy Action Plan from the European Union. Which is still a directive, but it's it slowly becomes legislation. Mm -hmm. Do you have? Uh, do you see? Because I mean, obviously, you're in touch with the, the global composite industry. Do you see similar uh, directives, regulations in the U.S. Uh, or Asia or some places that you you've been outside of Europe? I do see Asia as a faster follower. Europe in the lead. Asia is a faster follower than the US and in North America, um, you know, it really, you can never predict the regulatory environment in the US or kind of the, <laughs> if, if you look at the arc, you, you can't read the tea leaf, right? Hmm. I, I, heard, so, I heard someone say uh, a week or so ago to me, I can't remember who it was, but uh, if I think about it, I will. The U.S. invents, uh, Asia copies, and the Europeans regulate. <laughs> I won't comment on that. I won't. Yeah, yeah. On that. I mean, me either. <laughs> I just, I just put that out there. <laughs> All right. Put it out there. It's like the ball. It's like the ball landing on the green. There, you know. <laughs> there's there's shot quite there. a lot of uh, of invention <laughs> all around the world, for sure. We all have some mix of those things, for sure. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but you said like I mean this plays definitely a, a big role in scaling up these kind of these inventions if you have mm -hmm. the right regulatory framework in place. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And and, and Europe is, is where ninety percent of our customers are coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and you asked about industries, so it's really kind of up and down throughout the composite segment, and now kind of branching out into other segments where mm -hmm. thermocyclic glues are used. But think about, um, you know, really first structural applications is, is where we've started. And so sporting goods will be kind of first market. And then we've got um, projects in automotive, mm -hmm. uh, marine, aerospace. wind, aerospace. Aerospace will be the very last yeah. uh, just because, again, the regulatory environment and how long it takes to get into a part and approval and everything else for good reason, uh, because we don't we don't want to be in a plane that hasn't been tested right yeah. um yeah so so we kind of have too many projects to be honest mm -hmm. um but really trying to boil it down to the essential resin formulations that we can then commercialize and introduce across across mm -hmm. applications so a better way for us to look at it is really kind of by process uh, by industrial process we'll have a resin formulated for each major industrial process and then those processes will then feed into each of these industries in different ways. And uh, a couple of, because that's, that's what you also mentioned, that <clears throat> the whole atmosphere around circularity, the, the driving force has changed. Um, a couple of weeks ago, you've been at the Jack in Paris. Was there a significant difference to the other shows that you've attended that you just uh, stuck in in your memory from this one yet now especially after like covid and uh, supply chain crises was there yeah like no it's it's been an interesting time for sure and in this last um jec meeting in paris which is kind of the biggest global composites industry meeting in the world um this was the 2020 show happened finally in uh, April 2022, right? Yeah, and so that was supposed to be March 2020. And so that was an interesting time as well um, with the with the show basically getting canceled the weekend of. Um, and so, but yeah, in general, year after year, particularly in Europe, um, we've seen we've seen the conversation around like our booth at these type of shows go from you guys are not making sense to me and I don't know what you're talking about and I don't believe a word to we've heard about vitrimers. How do we get some, how do we test this? Um, and so it's really kind of become the trend in, in terms of circularity in Europe where the whole industry is searching out circular solutions mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, and yeah. so, um, so yeah, we, we definitely have seen that shift. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, I think looking at the time, it's, uh, it's time for our last question. The most important of all. Um, I mean, you've been warned already that we have a Plastic Lab Future playlist. Uh, that's our most important question in the end. So we, we are uh, kind of filling this playlist with our guest choices for 
favorite songs or songs that connect to their personalities or their activities. Yeah. Um, It'd be cool to yeah. hear something. So we need uh, one or two songs from you to put it on. All right. I've got two songs for you. All right. Um, both of them take me back to my childhood in very different ways. Cool. cool. Um, but around the house, my mom used to play a lot of Johnny Cash cassette tapes. <laughs> and so the, the automotive kind of materials side tie-in is a song I know uh, John probably knows called One Piece at a Time. I, I don't Johnny know that, Cash. but I love Johnny Cash. This is great. And the, the story of the song is he starts working at a Cadillac factory saying he's going to bring home his car one piece at a time in his lunchbox <laughs> and that GM won't notice a piece missing here or there, especially if he spreads it over several years. And so as the song unfolds, he tells a story like a, any good country Western song tells a story um, about how he, he sneaks out all the parts and then builds this Cadillac. And at the end, he's got two headlights on one side and one headlight on the other. Um, and when he goes to register the car, it you know it takes the whole staff and it weighs 60 pounds or something because it's a 54 <laughs> 55 56 57 uh, this is great this is great so it's a really fun little song uh and just kind of takes me back it's very playful um and s almost on topic super super, <laughs> super. That's great, all right yeah. this is a good one what's the oh, other I, one all right the other one you have two i've got two <laughs> The yeah. other one was just my favorite song when I was a kid, and it was just another cassette tape that we just happened to have in the family somehow. One of my brothers might have picked it up at a at a yard sale or something. Who knows? Um, but it was a song very few people know. It's called Cantaloupe. It's uh, like Cantaloupe. Us three, you know it. Of course. Oh, oh my wow. God. Early 90s <laughs> hip hop and jazz, and it's just yeah. a banger. It just yeah it's just okay. really good okay really i'm gonna learn vibe. something i'm gonna this learn is, something from this yeah this is great this was one of my favorite songs I was oh saying. this is my Can, favorite song cantaloupe flip the deja that's right exactly <laughs> that this song is, is a banger <laughs> this one yeah. is always good yeah and i've, I've actually i had the, the the entire album and i had a second one and actually there is it's just this one song which is really cool the other ones are it's okay but it's it's not a banger like this one <laughs> 